I'd like to introduce Cole Rostiala. He is the director of the UCLA Berkel Center for International Relations. He is a professor at UCLA Law School, and he has a joint appointment with the UCLA International Institute, where he teaches in the program of Global Studies. He is author of Does the Constitution Follow the Flag? The Evolution of Territoriality in American Law. Mr. Rostiala has been a visitor professor at Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, and Chicago University, and he was a fellow in the Foreign Policy Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Rostiala. Well, good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here and, of course, to help co-sponsor Zocalo's events on foreign policy. I'm a big fan of the organization, and I do hope you support them. I think the work that they do is terrific. So let me uh, briefly introduce Gideon Rose, our guest, and then I'm going to turn to a discussion of his book, which, as mentioned, is available out there. I read it. Uh, I recommend you do, too. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll find it uh, extremely interesting, as you'll see as we get into the details. So Gideon is currently the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine and for many years was managing editor. So he's been at the helm for some time. He has worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is also the sort of home of foreign affairs, as deputy director of national security studies. And from 1994 to 95, he was associate director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He's educated at Yale and Harvard, has a PhD in government, has, uh, I would say, a unique perch to think about American foreign policy, being at, uh, at Foreign Affairs, which is probably the most influential journal of foreign policy in the United States. So welcome, Gideon, Thank to Los Angeles. Much. Good to be here. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the book, more than a couple, but we'll start off with some big ones and move into some more narrow ones. So first of all, uh, your book is about how wars end. What made you think about this topic, and why did you want to write a book about it? Well, the topic, the book really has two phases, or the project had two phases. The first phase was in graduate school. I wrote a dissertation that was 15, finished 15 years ago, uh, and it was on the same kind of subject. It was started before the Gulf War, because I was trained as a Clausewitzian by my professors and mentors. Uh, he was a great Prussian military theorist who talked about the intersection of war and politics. And so from a Clausewitzian perspective, the ends of wars should be really interesting things to look at, uh, because that's when states decide to stop using force, but continue to use their uh, to pursue their political goals. So I looked at that, and sure enough, it turned out to be a really interesting topic, and I wrote a dissertation on it, and then I sort of put it on the shelf when I did other kinds of things. And then we kept fighting these wars, first the Gulf War, then the Iraq War, in which people didn't really think clearly about the subject, and we keep, kept getting surprised by the endings. And so I finally went back and said, you know what, I've got to do something with this. And I ended up rewriting the entire uh, book and adding new chapters on the recent wars and writing it for a general audience, and that's the origin of the book we have. So everybody thinks that, you know, everyone knows that sort of we screwed up in Iraq uh, because we didn't think about what to do in Iraq after Saddam's regime fell. Uh, but what people don't realize is that's the rule rather than the exception in American history. We do this a lot, and so I essentially explored what happened in previous conflicts and why we keep doing this and how not to do it in the future. Great. So, so why do we keep doing it? How come this keeps happening, this fumble? I think it keeps happening because we think about war in the wrong way. 
basically war has two sides, two different aspects. One is negative or destructive. It's uh, a fight on a large scale, beating up the enemy. This is the part we're all very familiar with. We think of war instinctively like a giant boxing match, right, in which our job is essentially to beat up the other guy, uh, to knock off our enemy, to knock him out if possible, or at the very least sort of fight to a draw and then it'll be over. And that's true. That's an important part of war. Uh, knocking off the enemy or beating up the enemy is a, is a key thing. But it's only half the story because war is also about politics. It's the pursuit of some kind of political settlement on the other side because basically even after the fight is over, unless you've killed your opponent, uh, he's going to come back and, and beat you up or try to beat you up again. And so at the end of the day, some kind of stable political settlement on the other side is the only way to prevent the problem from recurring. And so uh, we don't tend to focus on that side of things because it's complex and difficult and thankless. And so it's much easier in some ways and more convenient to think that the problem, let's say, in Iraq is that bad guy, Saddam Hussein, and all we have to do is beat him up or get rid of him. And that's the answer. Uh, the idea that it somehow the real solution to the problem or the only way we can truly forget about it will be if there's some kind of stable local political settlement in Iraq and the Persian Gulf more generally, that's so daunting to think about and so unpleasant and hard to manipulate that we just sort of ignore it. So we define the concept easily beating up Saddam, we go there, we do it, and then we wake up at the end of the day like Robert Redford and the candidate and say, well, what do we do now? And oh my God, it turns out that we're responsible for Iraq. And so we keep getting brought up short because we've defined the, the, the problem in, insufficiently broadly. If I remember, was it Colin Powell who said uh, the pottery barn theory, if you break it, you own it? Yeah, that was Colin Powell's uh, approach. Uh, but, you know, but Powell himself, frankly, didn't uh, even embody that perfectly in his own war that he ran, the, the Gulf War, because he was so concerned to put that into practice, he didn't want any responsibility for Iraq after the first Gulf War, that he very quickly turned around and went home, leaving not only Saddam in power, but also no real provisions for how to deal with a, a resurgent Saddam after the first Gulf War. So the first Gulf War is a classic example of this. We all think of the second uh, Iraq War as the, the er case of screwing up post-war planning, and it is. But the first Gulf War, even though they got a lot of things right, they, they did a lot of things wrong as well, because they defined the problem as pushing Saddam out of Kuwait. And when, and, but they sort of stop, didn't really stop to ask themselves, what happens after we push Saddam out of Kuwait? Uh, it was almost too daunting to think about. And it's sort of fascinating because if you look at George H.W. Bush, Papa Bush's uh, diaries, you can see this playing out. Uh, we have them available now. And at one point during the war, Saddam looked like he was going to concede just before the ground war in the Persian Gulf. Uh, this is in 1991. And uh, Bush writes in his diary, you know, hey, it's great, looks like Saddam's going to concede, he's going to withdraw, this is really wonderful. Uh, I'm really happy we're going to achieve what we wanted. He goes on to say, well, but, you know, I'm still a little worried because I can't quite see how things are going to work out if he's still in power in Iraq. I just don't understand how we're going to make the region secure and stable and what's going to be the fate of Kuwait and how things are going to work out. It won't seem like a fully accomplished victory if he's still there and still making trouble. And you can see, you know, we all know the theory of cognitive dissonance, how the mind doesn't like to hold two things simultaneously that are contradictory, and so there's a great tension and a desire to resolve them in some way. And you can see this process literally playing itself out in Bush's diary. The end of the same entry, he comes up with a solution. He's like, oh, that's okay, because 
some Iraqi will rise up to topple Saddam to deal with this. It's almost as if saying, okay, look, I want him to withdraw, but I don't want to deal with him in power. Oh, it's okay, I don't have to worry about the contradiction there because some Iraqi will resolve it. And, Saddam, and of course, uh, that's what they think will happen. Uh, but in practice, that doesn't happen. So after uh, the lightning victory in the Persian Gulf War, uh, Saddam stays in power. He isn't knocked off, and instead of a nice little revolution by the army, which leaves a thug in place who is unpleasant but able to maintain order and sort of relatively reliable, the kind of American, uh, an SOB, but our SOB, uh, that they sort of would like to see as the answer to the problem, that doesn't happen, and instead the people of Iraq rise up in, in both the south and then the north, and the Bush administration now is going, oh my God, and they do this double take. The, the Colin Powell is, you know, okay, we've, we've accomplished this, we've won everything, now, now we're going to Disneyland. But at the same time, Iraq itself is basically going into flames. And they watch, and, they, don't, and they, they essentially end up backing into containment of Iraq in the 1990s because they have to deal with the problem of what to do about Iraq even after you pushed them out of Kuwait. And I, one of the reasons that case is fascinating to me is... It's easy to make fun of Bush too and that administration for various reasons to say this is an extreme case of bad decision making for a whole variety of reasons. But in my field, in our field, Bush won with Brent Scowcroft and Papa Bush the Realist and James Baker and, and uh, 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 Colin Powell. They're sort of like the A-team. They're sort of like really serious players who you think of as in the field as being wise, sober realists and sophisticated types. And they screwed up at least part of the Gulf War thing as well. They just didn't think through what'll happen after we push them out of Kuwait. And um, so it, it kind of shows that you don't, it helps if you are stupid and think badly about this, but even smart people, you know, one of the things I wanted to say was, you know, a uh, subtitle for the book, potential subtitle was, you know, smart policymakers, foolish choices, right? Uh, even smart people can make uh, problematic choices mm. if they don't think about the problem in the right way. That's really interesting. Let, let's run with this case for a minute. Um, I want to ask you about some other cases and maybe a, a, a good example or at least a better example, but let's run with this one. What could they have done? What would you have done you with know, hindsight, it, uh, there's the, the short answer is they had to answer for themselves the question of was it acceptable for Saddam to remain in power after the Gulf War? If the Bush administration, this is the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, had if they had said to themselves, Iraq is a difficult nut to crack, we don't want to colonize it, we don't want to take charge, uh, and you know, for better or for worse, the unfortunate fact is that the only way uh, it's going to stay stable without our involvement is Saddam in power. And so that's what we're going to leave him there after having taught him a lesson. If they decided that that was the least bad option, and I know people who think that, that was the best option available. Cause, not because it was great, but because all the others were worse and more expensive and so forth. If that was what they decided, they should have transitioned from the war to a post-war containment regime more smoothly and sustainably. Okay? The end of the Korean War basically is a half a loaf solution. Right? We save South Korea, we let North Korea go, 
but they have a lot of negotiations and they think carefully, what is the armistice going to look like? What is the post-war security structure going to look like? How are we going to garrison Korea in the future? There are other problems with the Korean case, as, as, as I describe in the book. But essentially, we've been basically protecting South Korea for the last 60 years, uh, and we knew what we were going to be doing, and we basically set up to do it. If you had decided that, look, Kuwait is South Korea, we're going to accept a half a loaf push the bad guys back across the border to the north, set up a border, and police the, the border. Then you could have you know, secured Kuwait and left American troops there and moved to Kuwait. If you decided, you know what, we just can't live with Saddam in place, then you essentially should have prosecuted the war to some sort of conclusion in which your military actions were geared towards the fall of Saddam, maybe continuing the war for another day or two, maybe designing your strategy to knock him off. Basically, you just assumed that Saddam couldn't survive a humiliating defeat. Well, if you don't assume something in war, if you assume something, the odds are it's not going to play, play out. So you, you should never leave anything to chance. Uh, if, you, if, if it was decided that it was absolutely necessary for Saddam to be toppled, then you should have essentially gone there and not stopped until you topple him. But that involves having a plan for Iraq afterwards. In the, second, you know, in, the, in the Iraq war, we decide it's necessary to topple Saddam, but again, we don't want the responsibility of dealing with Iraq, and so we come up with a second magical Iraqi. In the first Gulf War, you have a magical Iraqi, uh, the, what they call a mustache, another Sunni general who would basically be an authoritarian ruler who would keep control. Um, there was an old CIA joke from that era. Uh, uh, I can't tell you the last name of Saddam's successor, but I can tell you his first name. So what's his first name? General. Right? That was... Uh, <laughs> Hollywood script writers are not exactly going to be uh, put out of work by the CIA's uh, jokesters. But, uh, so that was what they thought. And so the idea of this magical Iraqi who would come up to sort of solve the problems, like a deus ex machina at the end of the day in the Gulf War. Well, it didn't appear. But in the Iraq War, you have the same figure. It's a different magical Iraqi. This guy's name is Ahmed Shalabi, right? So we think of Ahmed Shalabi as the mastermind who was sort of the Svengali uh, uh, hypnotizing Bush administration officials, selling them a bill of goods. I think history's not going to see him that way at all. I don't think he had that much power. And I don't think that he entranced the Bush administration into doing something they wouldn't do. Ahmed Shalabi is best understood as the answer to the Bush administration's prayers, because they had already decided for themselves that A, they wanted to avoid their father's, uh, the, the, the father's mistake of leaving Saddam in power. They weren't going to do repeat that. And B, they were sure as hell not going to do the Clinton administration long involved nation building like the, uh, the Balkans and uh, so forth. So if you basically don't, if you want to get rid of Saddam and don't want to do nation building, you have to have some way out. And so Ahmed Shalabi is the answer to the question they posed for themselves. If he didn't exist, we would have invented him. Uh, he's the solution to their problems. But again, it's a way of avoiding the real problem, which is, you know what? Iraq is a very unpleasant, difficult place with a lot of internal divisions that doesn't have a particularly healthy, stable local structure, but it's also sitting on top of some of the most important natural resources for the global economy that exist in a very turbulent, difficult region. And we're kind of 
locked into protecting that for the global public good of the international stability, so what do we do with Iraq? But we don't want to think about the real costs and difficulties that that situation throws up, so we keep having refuge uh, in these magical figures who will solve all our problems and let us forget about international order. That's very interesting. Now, Korea, you mentioned Korea. Is that the best case? In other words, if you, so the book starts with World War I, I should say, and moves us all the way up to the present. Is the Korean War our success story, if there is a success story? Now, I think, the, I think World War II is as good a success story as we have, um, because the result in World War II leaves in place a stable, stable order for much of the world. We often focus on the bad aspects of World War II, the fact that the Russians got Eastern Europe and we couldn't prevent them from doing it, the fact that there was a lot of suppression in bad areas, and that's all true. But the fact is, the result of World War II was not only that we knocked off a world historical evil or two world historical evils if you throw in the Japanese Empire, but that we left large portions of the world stable and secure and paved the way for decades of growth and prosperity and liberalization and in one of the great sort of measures of the world history. Uh, the, the, the Marshall Plan and post-war order that we created in our sphere was actually a great accomplishment that Americans are deservedly proud of. Uh, we made other problems in World War II, but I think that was basically the best. Story. Korea, I think, is a lot like the Gulf in the sense that we had a half a loaf solution that ultimately was better than the status quo ante. Uh, the Korean case is distinctive for another reason, for a case that, for a reason that nobody remembers now, uh, which is that you know we all all the things we know about Korea, the attack across the 38th parallel, the Pusan perimeter, the Incheon landings, the Chinese intervention, the fight back, the Truman MacArthur controversy, all that stuff that we know about Korea happened in the first year. Right? So by the end of the first year of the war, you have an agreement to have a negotiated armistice along the sort of status quo ante lines, roughly. Uh, but then, what people forget about is the war continues for two more years. And this is sort of like this forgotten aspect of the forgotten war. All the stuff that MASH was set in, the background context, in which you have the, the army units having the hospitals there while the endless talks at Panmunjom go on, it kind of begs the question of what were those talks about? Well, the fascinating thing is, the first six months of the Korean armistice talks in the fall of 1951 were about just the kind of things you'd think. The specific arrangements for post-armistice uh, resupply, where exactly the line of demarcation and the ultimate border would be, and so forth. But the, all that is settled by the winter of 1951-52. And so the Korean War actually continues for almost a year and a half over one issue alone, and frankly, it's the most bizarre uh, issue in the entire history of American national security policy, I'll say. I had no clue of this until I started doing the research, and almost nobody else does, I think, either, except for weirdo specialists on Korea. And that's basically, we decided, for a variety of reasons we can get into if you want in the questions, to offer the enemy prisoners in UN hands the choice of whether to go back home or not. Basically, after World War II, we had sent Russian prisoners of war or Russians in our hands back to Stalin because uh, he had demanded them, and he had promptly sent them all into the gulag, and they were screaming and crying, and we didn't want to face that again. We also wanted the propaganda boost that would come from having a bunch of people choose Taiwan instead of China or South Korea instead of North Korea, and so we decide to offer the prisoners the choice to go back or not. But we think Atchison and Truman, when they do this, they think that it will be only a few who will say yes to the choice and that we can get away with that. 
uh, and still have the armistice deal. Well, it turns out for a variety of reasons, basically uh, lousy management of the prisoner of war camps, uh, think Abu Ghraib with kimchi uh, uh, in Korea, uh, the terrible management of the prisoner of war camps, that the, uh, the screening process for who wants to go back is screwed up royally, and tens and tens of thousands of prisoners end up saying, we don't want to go back. The Chinese and the North Koreans refuse to accept this, and the war continues for almost a year and a half over the question of whether we should allow the South Korean, uh, the, the Korean prisoners, the communist prisoners, asylum or not. And this is a fascinating uh, case because it shows that you should never do, you should never buy a policy without checking the price first. How many of us have gone to some restaurant or gone to a store and said, I really like that, I'm going to buy that, and then uh, we have sticker shock when we actually see what we've just committed to? Well, that's essentially what happens in Korea. Atchison, and it shows that you get even really bright people can do dumb things. Uh, 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 <clears throat> Atchison is one of the best policymakers in American history, one of the most sophisticated, serious guys out there, and he basically commits to this policy and having not followed through on what it would cost, and when he realizes the cost and he realizes how screwed he is, he basically covers up the entire episode. Uh, and so the true story about the Korean prisoner issue doesn't come out for another 30 years until the archives are, are opened and no one knows about it. But, that, but anyway, but Korea by and large is a pretty good Pretty good case. Okay, so, so it's a good case. World War II is an even better case. I'm thinking about the comparison between the Iraq War of 2003 and Japan. So in both cases, uh, we have an occupation that's essentially our occupation. Um, there's a superficial coalition aspect in Iraq, but it's our war. And um, in Japan, we go in and we stay there for many years. In fact, we keep Okinawa for a very long time, but we stay occupying and running Japan, and then Japan emerges as one of our strongest allies. Um, how did we achieve that in Japan, and yet we, we, perhaps that will happen with Iraq? It does not look that way. Japan and Germany. Um, we managed well, I'm to leaving Germany out only because there's so many other states involved. It seemed like a more complicated comparison, but yeah, feel free I, I, to... I would lump Germany in there, in the sense that if you're going to lump in the cases in which we totally defeat the enemy, we conquer their country, we stay there forever, and midwife a, uh, a nice uh, uh, outcome at the end of the day, I would lump Germany in there, and frankly, you could put Korea in there as well. And the reason Korea is actually interesting is, South Korea, is that it provides a slightly different scenario. We tend to think of Germany and Japan, we went in, conquered them, made them democracies, and everything worked out. And so the people who don't want to do that in Iraq and so forth say, well, you can't do that. You can't turn around and make Iraq a democracy. The reason I would throw Korea into the mix is Korea is kind of a halfway house, which is right. we go in, we conquer, uh, we, we, take, we, we protect South Korea, uh, and we don't make it a democracy. We make it an authoritarian regime uh, in a kind of fairly standard uh, authoritarian, right-wing authoritarian regime. And what happens? Over several decades, it gradually evolves and becomes a nice, happy, prosperous uh, democracy. Uh, and so you can get to democracy in the long run, even if you don't get there in the short run. The lesson of Korea is you can actually, American occupation and protection can lead to a very good outcome, even if the initial regime that we put in is relatively thuggish, right? The initial, uh, if you had stayed, if you had found some way of staying in South Vietnam and protecting it, if the geography 
of Vietnam had looked like the geography of Korea, a peninsula where you could isolate the battlefield, draw a line across the top, and say, okay, we're going to protect this line. First of all, I think if that had happened, you could have stayed in South Vietnam, just like you stayed in Korea. Second of all, you would have had a regime in the South of Vietnam that would have been just like the regime in the South of Korea. It would have been just as corrupt and authoritarian and relatively nasty. And you know what? I bet that several decades later, it would have evolved in precisely the kind of way, because modernization theory uh, in your academic hat that you talk about, it would have ended up in the kind of similar result. Um, in Iraq, we screw up in Iraq for a whole variety of reasons. It's a very difficult challenge. Um, we are cocky and basically people take it unseriously. Uh, the Bush administration wants to avoid doing anything like nation building. They want to avoid the investment. And so they come up with this cockamamie theory of a light footprint uh, in which we're going to go in, knock out the bad guys, walk away, turn it over to locals, and everything will be fine. Um, somebody actually asked me right afterwards, uh, did we learn anything about democracy promotion from the Iraq war? And I said, no, I don't think we did. Larry Diamond actually asked me this at Stanford at a talk. And, I, uh, and, I, and they said, well, why do you, how can you say we didn't learn anything? I said, because everything we did in Iraq violated every single rule in the playbook for what serious people thought was necessary for the promotion of democracy. And so all we learned was, if you take everything we think we know and throw it out the window and go in and do it on the fly in a half-assed way, and it doesn't work, you haven't really learned anything. You just knew that what you thought you knew kind of made sense. If we had done Iraq the right way, if you'd gone in in a relatively serious manner, if you had provided for public order and security, if you had essentially tried a best practices approach to neocolonialism, you might say, if we're being blunt about it, and tried to do it right, and it still hadn't worked, you'd say, you know what, this stuff is really, really hard to do. But a, the tantalizing counterfactual in Iraq is uh, that what if we had done it right? If you had done, I think if you had done with this, if you had done the surge in 2003 rather than 2007, could you have had at the end of the day in 2004, 5, and 6 the same situation you have now, which is not pretty, which is not especially uh, happy, not, a, not completely safe, but vastly more stable than the chaos and near civil war that you had in you know, 2003 to six. Uh, it's an interesting question. Now, Afghanistan. So we're, since we're moving sort of forward in history, uh, still happening. It's our longest war, uh, 10 years and counting. What, uh, I guess two questions about it come to mind. First, what is their planning happening and what does it look like? And what would you counsel? You know, for 40 years, everything that the United States, every military operation the United States has done for the last 40 years has had the shadow of Vietnam sort of hanging over it, and it's been compared to Vietnam. The vast majority of times, that's completely inappropriate. You know, Colin Powell and the U.S. military went into the Gulf War thinking about Vietnam. The fact is that of all the conflicts in the world, the Gulf War and Vietnam were as you know, op completely opposite and diverse as you can imagine. Why they had that in their mind, it was a pure cognitive thing. So usually the Vietnam analogy isn't accurate. In Afghanistan it is. 
if you look at the structural situation, you have a sort of thankless counterinsurgency in a uh, backward, strategically marginal country with deeply rooted local conflicts with a, a boundary, uh, you know, a safe havens across a boundary nearby that we can't get at. I mean, this looks like Vietnam redux. Uh, and the problem is that we're already in there, right? So everyone talks about Johnson and Kennedy. Nah, the problem is Nixon, right? If you're Obama, you are Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger in Vietnam. You're not LBJ. You're not facing the question of whether we escalate. You're facing the question of, oh my God, I've inherited an incredibly difficult situation. What do I do now? You know, there's an old joke uh, about a guy who gets lost in the woods and uh, he stumbles into a clearing finally, and he, he sees a house, and he knocks on the door, and the, far he, the farmer comes out, and he, the guy says to him, excuse me, I'm, I'm completely lost. Can you tell me how to get back to town? And the farmer looks at him and says, well, the first thing is I wouldn't start from here. Uh, uh, you know, if you're looking for how to get out of Afghanistan, you know, the first thing is I wouldn't start from such an absolutely god-awful situation. Because basically, you're, what you're facing in Afghanistan is... Um, a really tough choice uh, between the costs of staying and the risks of leaving. Uh, there is no silver bullet. There's no $100 policy lying on the ground waiting to be picked up. Uh, if you read the Bob Woodward book, the uh, administration keeps cycling back to hoping that some slight tweak on some specific strategy is going to get them out of this. It's not. At the end of the day, the choice we have to make in Afghanistan is you know, should I stay or should I go? Uh, and, uh, you know, if you stay, there'll be trouble. If you leave, there'll be double or vice versa, depending on your perspective. Uh, both options suck. And the real question is, you know, which uh, are you prepared to live with? Um, like the uh, Gulf War that we talked about, it comes down to a choice, which is you tell me whether you think it's necessary to stay in Afghanistan to protect, whether you can live with the, the risks. If, if you tell me, I can't live with the costs of war in Afghanistan, but I can live with the risks that uh, some bad thing might emanate from there later on after we leave and come back. You know what? The world is full of risks. I can live with that one, too. That's fine. I'll say, fine. I can tell you how to get out. If you say, I, I can't live with that risk, but I can live with the relatively uh, minor costs of a professional military fighting a war. This is a kind of imperial policing operation that's necessary for the preservation of order around the world. Then I say, fine, stay. If you said to me, if you know, so in effect, Obama cobbled together two policies together uh, for his uh, his Iraq, his Afghanistan strategy. Um, it's like Saint Augustine's favorite, uh, famous prayer: "Lord, make me chaste, uh, but not yet." Right? Uh, uh, Obama basically sort of said, "You know, I'm going to surge and withdraw." Uh, but uh, in 2011, as that deadline uh, approaches, he's going to have to choose between the two policies because essentially the same situation. In, is going to present itself next spring as it presented itself in 2009, which is if he pulls out, there's a high likelihood that Afghanistan will revert to some sort of chaos. And so the question is, can you accept that or not? Um, I, I think that, you know, I, as to what I think, I frankly wake up on different days uh, thinking one or the other. Um, I'm going to give a talk tomorrow at the Nixon Library, and I'm going to lay out a... Uh, 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 a strategy that I would say, you know, what would Nixon do? And it's kind of funny because... Uh, in fact, I think there is a way out uh, if you decide to, that you could live with the costs. And if, it is to follow the Nixon playbook on Vietnam. Uh, we think of Nixon, well, different people think of Nixon different ways, of course. But you know, the left thinks of Nixon and Kissinger as bloodthirsty warmongers who escalated the war or continued it for years without kind of uh, any sort of uh, uh, plan to get out. 
and uh, the right tends to think of him as you know, somebody who gained a peace that was honorable, was then stabbed in the back by lefty congresses and so forth, uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, in fact, the truth is neither or part of both, which is that Nixon and Kissinger came into office and they realized, uh, well, first they want, like, like Obama, they thought they could do it right if they just tried things themselves. So their first year, they have a, a new strategy. Uh, it doesn't work. And they find themselves in late 69, not knowing what to do, back where they started, just like Obama will be next year. And at that point, they have to face the real question of what, whether to stay or go. And they decide, you know what, the political context at home is so adverse uh, that we have to get out. So they basically start themselves on a path to withdrawal, but they don't want to do it very quickly and they don't want to do it so as to leave a lot of chaos behind. And so they <coughs> essentially take a middle course of a glide path out. And they manage to do so uh, and get pretty far towards what they want and then everything falls apart in 73 to 75 for reasons partly because they hadn't bought complete security, they had bought only a chance at the South's survival, partly because of Watergate and partly because the political passions were so great. If I were Obama, uh, the lessons, I, I, and I really wanted to get out, if Obama it means what he says, then I would take a page from the Nixon playbook uh, and follow his policy, but you have to be a lot more devious than, than a lot more cynical than Obama has revealed himself to be. Uh, what does that mean? It means lying about what you're doing. Instead of sort of uh, there's an old joke about, uh, in the East Coast, we say, you know, wasps uh, leave without saying goodbye, and Jews say goodbye but never leave. Um, uh, you know, Obama is, is saying goodbye but not leaving, right? Uh, the strategy to get out is the opposite, which is you leave, but you, you, you lie about how long you're going to stay, right? Instead of saying, we're going to leave in 2011, and then not be uh, able to do that, you should say, oh, we're, we're going to stay. We're, we're going to be here forever. Of course we're going to protect. Of course we're going to protect you. Oh, Mr. Karzai, everything's going to be... We're gonna, you know, everything's going to be great. We'll be here forever. We're gonna, oh, factions, we're never going to leave Afghanistan. We're going to... Oh, we're all gone. Oh, bye-bye. Right. Uh, in other words, you want to basically disguise and misdirect what you're doing. Right? Lie shamelessly. Like Kissinger and Nixon were good at that, but that's kind of necessary. Uh, second, um, you have to have some cover, cover your retreat. Uh, things like uh, the invasion of Cambodia, uh, which are these horrible, terrible things which produce all sorts of uh, uh, domestic horrible reactions like Kent State and various protests. In fact, if you look at them in the strategic history of the Vietnam War, they are covering actions. They're like the guy left behind doing the covering fire while his platoon runs away. We are withdrawing, we are on the way out. The Cambodia operation and then the invasion of Laos and the Ho Chi Minh Trail the next year, Lam San 719, are basically operations to cover our withdrawal and retreat. Uh, and you'd want to sort of step up things like the drone strikes. You'd want to do massive forays, quick forays into the Pakistan tribal areas to cover up the fact that you're actually getting out of Dodge. Um, and finally, I think that you want to basically have a plan in place for uh, supporting the government in Kabul uh, even after you leave, um, which you could get away with. I think the Nixon and Kissinger strategy could work in Afghanistan because the passions are not quite so high, partly because the surge is seen to have worked. There's an alternative uh, narrative to the Vietnam narrative now, and that's the Iraq narrative. And we can debate whether or not the Iraq narrative of the surge working is correct or not. There's, there's a certain amount of truth to it, I think, um, although not as much as some people would like to think. But it exists. And so now you have 
a parallel or a paragon or a, uh, some kind of storyline that says if you double down, you could actually keep it going. You don't have to have all failure. And so that gives Obama a sort of political space to, in effect, leave but also protect so you don't have to accept defeat as the only answer. So that, that might be the kind of thing I would, I would do in Afghanistan, the Nixon strategy. But again, it's an incredibly uh, uh, sort of ruthless, cynical approach that uh, requires a kind of um, Machiavellian uh, attitude towards this stuff. Once you're in a really bad situation, that's almost the only way uh, out. Hmm. Just, just as an aside, one of the interesting things, I think most interesting things in Gideon's book are these interactions that he portrays, often drawn from tapes, as uh, in the case of Nixon and Kissinger, in which the principals are debating exactly these questions in a very candid way. Uh, and it's really a fascinating window on the kind of thinking that goes on. Let me say, actually, on that point, you, uh, you said, are they having these debates inside? Uh, I don't know. I don't get the sense yet that they are. Uh, from the books that have come out, and now we have these, these Woodward-type books that seem to have tapes uh, on the ground inside, uh, they don't seem to be having those conversations yet. After I did Vietnam, I felt very nostalgic, and I went around complaining uh, that after I did the Vietnam chapter, I wanted every president to have a taping system in place so that scholars can later uh, figure out exactly what they were thinking at all times. If you do research on Vietnam, it's actually great now in the next administration because you actually can tell, gee, because here's, okay, they're saying this and in public, and here's what Nixon and Kissinger are saying behind the closed doors. It's great as a research, as a research tool. And I really wish we kind of had that. I, I'm supportive of all White House taping systems uh, because they help us figure out later on what they were actually thinking. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that is a, a policy we'll adopt. It's a little is bit like a, reality TV. You think, how could these people be honest when they were being taped? Right? Well, first of all, in the Nixon White House, only the president really knew they were being taped. But even Nixon, you'd think, you think he would strategically use the tapes, right? Well, he never thought they would get out. It's like people of my generation look at reality TV and they say, how can you act naturally when there's a camera in your face? But for kids these days, that they just, that's a, a norm of life. So they go about acting in the same way. Well, you the Nixon, you know, the, that's what they did in the Nixon administration, and you have the equivalent of reality TV for the White House, which is really great. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very interesting. Now, in general, the, the book is a story of, of, of failure, of mistakes made and opportunities lost, uh, though there are some examples that are better than others. That's a, a theme that runs through it. So uh, is there something in our national character, uh, something in the way we govern ourselves, something in the way the foreign policy establishment works that leads us into these problems, or does every great power have this problem? What is it? I was trained by really bright, smart, serious uh, uh, mentors who were very tough critics who had really high standards. So if the book seems like it's a record of failure, it's not because we've done so horribly all the time. Sometimes we have. It's because I'm grading on a really tough scale because, in effect, the people that I was trained by sort of weren't satisfied unless everything was really perfect. And it's like, you know, that, that, that Jewish mom who says, you know, you got a 98 in the test, and she says, okay, well, what did you get wrong? Well, what are those two points kind of thing? So I, I hold my policymakers to a very high standard, and I criticize them uh, even when they do a good job overall, uh, even if they could have done a better job in some ideal way. So that's partly why it seems like it's a record of failure. That said, sometimes they screw up. Um, as to whether we screw up more than others, you know, it's hard to say. If you look at the record of democracies in action, uh, they tend to do uh, less badly than dictatorships overall, but also less well than the best dictatorships. Uh, if you look at China over the last, you know, 60 <coughs> years, right, it divides rather neatly. 
30 years of the, one of the most heinous dictatorships known to man with some of the most catastrophic losses and disastrous policies, and then 30 years of extraordinary success and highly uh, competent technocratic leadership, which has gotten 10% growth. Now, does authoritarianism produce uh, you know, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, or does it produce, you know, endless 10% growth? Well, the answer is it allows a lot of flexibility. If you have a good authoritarian leadership, they can take wise policies, and if you have a crappy authoritarian leadership, they can do the worst kind of thing. Democracy tends to cut off the extremes. You don't tend to do very well on the upside, but you don't tend to do nearly as badly on the downside, if only because you have policies that cycle through. However bad uh, a war leadership is, you end up kicking the bastards out and getting new people in with the mandate to change things. One of the best books on Vietnam that I'm sure you teach is called The Irony of Vietnam, The System Worked. And the, uh, the, the thesis of the book is that if you look at Vietnam, what we followed for all that it seems like this horrible, crazy, uh, radical course, it was actually the middle road position all the way throughout. As long as the public course seemed to be, the central middle course seemed to be escalation was going to the least bad option. That was what we followed when it seemed like it was costly and thankless and not really going to work. We start to get out and the actual course of American intervention is like this because that was the middle of the road course. You tend to follow that. I think that, uh, you know, essentially what's required for good policy is that policy, you have smart policymakers who think about it the right way. Uh, I say that because even smart policymakers do dumb things sometimes, um, and so you need to think about it the right way. And the kind of fixes that I would suggest changing, um, you know, we, we think of the Iraq war, uh, and uh, we all know that they called post-war planning phase four, right? That was the stuff they supposedly ignored in Iraq, phase four planning. Um, well, uh, no to-do list in the world has ever, nobody has ever gotten down to the fourth item. Uh, certainly I never have on my wife's honey-do list, right? If you think of phase, uh, of, of post-war stability as your fourth item, you're never going to get there. Uh, the guy who took, uh, the Marine general who commanded the troops that took Baghdad, uh, helped topple that statue, uh, was asked whether post-war planning uh, in Iraq was uh, uh, necessarily going to be bad, compared, uh, short-changed compared to planning for combat. And he said, you know, you shoot the wolf closer to the sled. Right? And if that's the way you think about war, which is sort of military operations and then post-war stuff, then you're always going to screw it up because you're always going to be focusing on that first. So my, my one takeaway suggestion, very simple suggestion, doesn't require any resources, any extra expenditures, any change of ideology, flip the numbering. So that instead of thinking of it as phase four, think of it as phase one. And think of the entire war as like a countdown, like a moon launch, right? So what you're doing in sending troops there is phase four and three and two, all leading up to your ultimate outcome, which is phase one. You're, it's a countdown to the outcome. Only then will you be able to leave. So blast off is when you can t go home. But blast off only occurs because you've done the things leading up to it. And if you would think about it that way, you would realize that all the parts of war that we obsess about, the entry into war, the initial battles, things like that, are only, they only have meaning and value insofar as they are precursors to, or base camps for, stepping stones to some ultimate settlement at the end of the day that's gonna solve the problems at issue. And so reversing the numbering sequence, going from you know, counting down to where you wanna be, is a simple fix that would actually help you think properly about the subject. So you mentioned costs a few times, and um, when we were talking earlier upstairs, uh, one of the things that we talked about for, for a brief moment I wanna hear more about is uh, political costs and specifically the draft. So uh, what effect 
does a draft have and what effect does the lack of a draft have? You know, I think the lack of a draft, uh, people who are constrained have to, are more aware of the trade-offs they're making, right? If you're relatively poor, if you have straightened circumstances, you're going to be counting your pennies a little more carefully and you're going to be uh, making tougher calls on whether you can really afford this or not. And the fact is that if you're unconstrained, if you're a rich person, you can afford whatever the hell you want. Then it becomes a question of, gee, do I happen to feel like getting myself a Ferrari today or not? You don't really, you know, and then it becomes almost a question of preference. Policymakers or countries are in similar situations. If you are truly constrained, then you will uh, think through your choices more carefully. If you are unconstrained, then you will be able to do things on a whim. And I think that the uh, recent interventions, and let's take Iraq as a sample uh, example of that, are a product, part of the reason for the lack of bad, uh, part of the reason for the lack of proper planning is you could get away with it. We were incredibly rich, the White House was incredibly uh, unconstrained and unfettered, and you have a, a sort of uh, all-volunteer uh, expeditionary, expeditionary force army that uh, isn't going to put a, uh, a crimp uh, in your popularity if you deploy it. All those things lead you, I think, to be more casual about the deployment of military force because, not because you don't care, not because you um, uh, are, are thoughtless and irresponsible, although it's possible you might be, uh, but simply because your mind isn't, you know, the, the prospect of a hanging concentrates the mind wonderfully, as the old saying goes. Well, if you don't have any prospect of a hanging, you can basically do whatever you want. And so if you have, if you're, if, if you're straightened circumstances, you know, Obama is not, we're not going to be launching many new open-ended wars uh, in our current fiscal circumstances, I think, uh, because why we don't want to actually get on the hook for these very difficult, costly adventures. Uh, if you have a draft, and I would put a draft in the same kind of way, the draft is a domestic political constraint like fiscal austerity, in the sense that if you have a draft, it's going to be rather costly. Uh, and if you send the, uh, the, you know, the sons and daughters of the elite off into a thankless, open-ended war um, that uh, nobody wants to fight, and they come back in body bags or disabled or whatever, then you're pretty soon going to have some kind of domestic uh, unrest, uh, and um, both because of the, uh, the children and their parents. Uh, and I think the absence of a draft allows us to avoid that constraint. And in effect, the, you don't have to worry about deploying uh, your military for that particular reason. You have to worry about other things. And I think that if you look back in, in Vietnam, you know, we like to think of the protests and anti-war movements as driven by idealism and great views about ideology and American foreign policy. I think that, in fact, in retrospect, one of the things behind it was simply the presence of a mass draft, which essentially put the burden of the war squarely on the, the whole country uh, in a way that uh, later wars have not been. Sure, sure. So um, thinking about how war has changed, one of the things we know is that wars are different today, or different, were different in the 20th century than they were in the 19th century. Um, we don't tend to have the Gulf War as an exception, in a sense, in which it's an aggressive war. One, one state attacks another seeking territory. We don't really see that kind of war that often anymore. Uh, 
And instead, we see a lot of these messier situations in which um, there's maybe civil war, there's all kinds of uh, divisions and so forth. Um, there may be genocides. There's things happening internally that then spill over. Uh, does that, does that, the changing nature of warfare make a difference for how a government like the United States government might be able to plan or how we might deal with the end game? Does it just complicate everything? It's an interesting question. and I would say yes, but. And uh, the yes, but is the following. I will first want to dispute the premise. I think that it's true that the wars we have now are, tend to be messier than previous wars. But I don't think that's because the nature of war has changed. I think that's more because we're fighting more of a certain kind of war now and less of another kind of war. And I think there's a reason for that. Okay? We fought wars like this before. If you look at the Philippines a century ago, it's pretty damn familiar to people who look at the current conflicts. Right? We fought imperial policing wars in the past. Right? So it's not, it's not you know, if you look at the, you know, the peninsula campaigns in, in you know, earlier centuries in Europe, the, they're, they're, they're not, you know, guerrilla warfare is not something new. Clausewitz has discussions of this as well, and you can see this kind of thing as well. Um, that said, we don't have to fight a lot of those kinds of traditional great power or cross-border wars precisely because we've cleared and held and are building large areas around the globe, okay? We basically, we got sick and tired of those kinds of wars in Europe, and so we conquered Europe and sat there, divided it up with the Soviets, and then when they left, we sort of extended our writ, and now basically, we don't let the Europeans fight wars anymore, and because they're nice, happy Democrats all together in a union, they don't want to fight those wars anymore. But basically, we've solved the problem of public order for Europe by subordinating their international anarchy to a, to a subunit and so forth. We don't have wars like that in the Pacific because we basically took over the Japanese empire and are now running it. Uh, the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere now actually lives up to its name. Okay? When we're running it, we're actually running it on behalf of the East Asians in a good sense. So that may make me sound like a, uh, you know, a crazy neocon or an American imperialist, but we are providing the public good of order for East Asia uh, in a benign way that allows uh, various countries to exist without having to arm themselves in a competitive uh, manner against the other. So we've taken off a lot of those other right. wars uh, off the table, which is why we're left with these nasty... Uh, uh, annoying wars in the developing world uh, that uh, are hard to get out of, that are, involve fundamentally uh, difficult kinds of pacification and so forth. So th I think that's an important kind of thing. I, I deal with that in the conclusion a little bit. It's a rather controversial right. argument, but I, I, I would make it. Um, as to you know, that posing new problems, I think it does. It basically, it means that you really have to ask yourself whether it's necessary, right? Um, if you look at uh, uh, the Persian Gulf, there is a reason why we care about the Persian Gulf. The fact is, and we don't talk about this because it's politically incorrect, you know, during the Gulf War, uh, the, uh, some of the people on the left had this line that if Kuwait produced bananas rather than oil, we wouldn't have worried about Saddam's invasion. And you know, I'm doing the research on the Gulf War case, and I've come across that kind of statement, and I go, yeah, that's, that's basically true. But so what? Kuwait doesn't produce bananas. Kuwait produced oil. At the time of the Gulf War, Kuwait had about 
10% of global energy supplies under its sands. And Iraq had about 10% of global energy supplies under its sands. And Saudi Arabia had about 20% of global energy supplies under its sands. So as of you know, 24 hours after the uh, invasion of Kuwait by Saddam in August 1990, uh, a ruthless, aggressive, uh, WMD-using uh, a dictator who modeled himself on Stalin and had a, one of the most nasty, violent, aggressive police states in, in history, uh, that bad, uh, not worse than others, but, but up there in, in, a, in a pantheon, um, controlled directly 20% of the global uh, fossil fuel supply and controlled another 20% indirectly because he was in de facto uh, uh, ability to control Saudi Arabia's. So if we had left that in charge, we would have basically had Saddam control 40% of global energy supplies uh, in the hands of Saddam Hussein. Frankly, not a particularly situation that I would like to be in, so I was all in favor of the Gulf War, and even more so the more I learned about it in retrospect. So there's a reason why the Persian Gulf matters. Now, does Afghanistan matter as much? Yes, we were attacked from there. Do we need to have uh, absolute stability in Afghanistan? I would say no. It becomes a question of, would it be nice for us? Yes. Would it be nice for the Afghans? Absolutely. Uh, is it bad for the Afghans if there's a lot of chaos there? Absolutely. Is it bad for us if there's a lot of chaos there? Yes, although not as bad as for the Afghans. But given the costs and difficulties of providing public order, uh, do we really need this one? I don't know. Could we live without Vietnam? Well, you know what? We lived just fine without Vietnam. It was terrible for people in <coughs> Indochina. Our cutting our losses in Indochina and coming home was bad for Indochina. Probably was the right thing for us to do. And if you're not going to be able to, uh, if you don't really, ha given the cost of these wars and the difficulty in this kind of war of coming up with a stable solution, it comes down to like the, pri the prisoners of war in Korea, which is if you're going to set something as a goal, you damn well better be sure that it's a goal that's absolutely necessary because the costs and difficulties uh, in blood and treasure and prestige and everything of, of achieving it are going to be really high. Thank you. Okay, let's open it up to questions. Um, you mentioned that the, um, the constraints... Um, were relatively mild for uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and yet in 2004, I believe it was, we vacated all our troops and bases in Saudi Arabia. And also you said that the invasion of Cambodia was like a justifiable step in getting out of Vietnam. And would you consider the creation of like a Pakistani Khmer Rouge to be a justifiable cost? The challenge in leaving Afghanistan just like the challenge in leaving Vietnam from the perspective of, I think, American national security policy uh, would be to liquidate an ill-considered and uh, costly uh, foreign adventure uh, with as few downside effects as possible. Uh, and part of the challenge there is making sure or trying to ensure that you can walk out rather than 
be pushed out uh, and to limit the negative consequences of your departure. If you think of the difference between what it would be like to have left Iraq in 2006-07, right? Let's say that either you had uh, uh, not done the surge or you had done the surge and it hadn't worked at all, just been a complete failure. And you basically sort of pull out of Iraq because it's a giant chaos and you just say enough is enough, we walk away. It would have not just been bad for the Iraqis, it would have been a gross humiliation for American policy, it would have been all sorts of problems and so forth. Now we've been able, we, we got lucky enough because of a variety of things which we can discuss if people care about them in Iraq, we got lucky enough that we're able to sort of walk out tentatively, tiptoeing out, while leaving behind a much more stable structure and so forth. If you're thinking about getting out of Afghanistan and you can't actually convince the enemy to uh, allow you to get out uh, without a problem. And if you don't want to necessarily see it all turn around in some kind of giant chaos when you leave in an open civil war, then you're going to have to do something to essentially counteract the negative consequences of your leaving. Part of that's going to be aid to the Afghan government and the Afghan army and security forces and so forth. But part of it is also going to be both a distraction and a sort of a, a warning to the bad guys that they can't take advantage of your pulling out. And so I wouldn't think that the creation of a Pakistani Khmer Rouge uh, would be a good thing, obviously not, but uh, it's not entirely clear to me that the Khmer Rouge uh, deserves to be thought of simply as our creation. Uh, they were, after all, the bad guys we were fighting, uh, and the, um, the story of what happened in post-war Cambodia is a complex, difficult story in which nobody comes out looking particularly good, but a precondition, frankly, for uh, what happened in the Khmer Rouge genocide was that the U.S. was no longer there, right? So if we're in Indochina, you don't get the Cambodian genocide. You get a lot of other bad things that we decided we don't want to be in Indochina. But if we're there, you don't get the genocide. So uh, I think that um, you know, if we're leaving, we want to find some kind of way to try to ensure that the, the consequences of our leaving aren't that bad. With regard to the first, I think that uh, I'm not entirely sure. The, 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 my, my point about Iraq was that in Iraq, we, we did what we did in Iraq in 2003 because we could, the Bush administration could do whatever it wanted, essentially. Uh, we were very rich as a country. We had very little international uh, constraints on us. We had very little domestic constraints because they, uh, of the legacy of 9-11 and the way that that was played politically at home. And essentially, the Bush administration decided it wanted to do this. I think the Iraq war in 2003 is like the old joke about uh, where does the 800-pound gorilla sit? And the answer is sort of wherever it wants to. Well, essentially, after 9-11 and after Afghanistan, the Bush administration had a huge amount of discretionary power and resources at its disposal. It chose Iraq, but it could have essentially chosen to deploy those resources in a whole variety of ways. And so the, the question of sort of uh, a precursor to why we did Iraq was why uh, uh, doing anything at all, and the administration had the freedom of action to do whatever it wanted. So that's what I, that's what I say about the, the role of power in Iraq and so forth. Uh, we're talking here about Afghanistan, which is about a 10-year-long war. There are longer conflicts. I'm looking at uh, this issue of foreign affairs. This has been a war that started 40 or arguably even 60 years ago where no one seems to know how to end it. You the, I mean, half the protagonists have changed by now. Uh, do you have any thoughts or advice to the people involved in that conflict? You mean in the I Middle mean, East? Yes. Oh, yes, in case. I was a peon 
uh, getting coffee for uh, the members of President Clinton's peace team in the 90s uh, during the Oslo years. And uh, the, we used to say uh, at that point, a standard rhetoric in American foreign policy, standard rhetoric of officials was, you know, we can't want it more than the locals. Uh, and I came to conclude at the end of the day that we actually did want it more than the locals. And that's one of the reasons why it didn't work. Um, I can't believe that I came around to this position, but I did. In, 19, in the wake of the Gulf War, there was the Madrid Peace Conference and uh, uh, some attempts at uh, Arab-Israeli peace. And James Baker uh, got so uh, pissed off uh, at the Arabs and the Israelis, the Palestinians and the Israelis, that he famously said to them, uh, he, gave them he read off the number of the White House switchboard. And he said, that's our number. When you're serious about peace, give me a call. Uh, and it was seen at the time as an incredibly you know, offensive and, and uh, uh, you know, anti-Israel or anti-Arab or whatever, anti-everything. Uh, I, I kind of know how he feels. I've watched this now for a very long time in my professional career. I've seen uh, some of the most extraordinary and dedicated U.S. Uh, diplomats and public servants try and tackle it, uh, working their butts off for it, doing very smart things, um, doing some dumb things, but on balance, giving it a really good faith effort. Uh, uh, the, vet, you know, the people who think that we could do better on the peace process if only we would tweak, tweak this or do that better, uh, they're kidding themselves. The fact is we've had some very, very smart people doing very, very serious things, and it hasn't worked. And the reason it hasn't worked is because uh, this is a devilishly complex and difficult process uh, in which the overlapping interests are uh, so uh, intertwined uh, and the parties aren't ready to, uh, to make a deal. Uh, the, the way I explain, when I teach the Middle East, I, I use the producers as an analogy, right? We all know the story of the producers, right? Uh, you know, he comes up with things where he sells the profits several different times uh, and then tries to produce a flop. And the idea is that after a flop, uh, uh, all the debts will be off and he'll get to keep the proceeds, but it's a success, and then you have to basically pay off. Well, uh, that's a little bit what's happened. You know, Aaron, Aaron Miller had a book on the Middle East called The Much Too Promised Land, and that's exactly the situation. Right now you have a situation in which all the parties feel they have vastly more of a stake than, you know, it's been promised to too many people. You have a workout situation. Uh, if anybody does, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know <coughs> bankruptcy agreements here. And um, each side kind of knows, they've come to accept that they're not going to get uh, a dollar for their dollar, they're not going to get 100% of what they want, but they haven't psychologically accepted just how little they're going to get, right? So the Israelis have come down maybe from, you know, a dollar on the dollar to 80 cents on the dollar. And they recognize that. But you know what? They're going to get maybe 60 cents on the dollar. And the Palestinians have maybe come down from a dollar to 85 cents. But they're going to come down to 40 cents at the end of the day. And the fact is that each of them feels aggrieved, not just because they were screwed and they're not going to get less than they promised, but because they've, even, they've, come, they've, they've changed their position and they're accepting less now than they accepted even a few years ago. And so they feel the other guy should, should, should uh, concede even more. But the fact is, neither one of them is even in range of what the actual solution is going to be. So uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. And the, the, uh, until there's a psychological uh, 
sense on both sides of a true willingness to accept the half a loaf that's actually there until the Palestinians accept 48, that they basically have to give up what they lost in 48, until the Israelis have to accept that they are going to give up what they won in 67. You're not going to basically see uh, a solution there. Anybody with a, uh, looking at this carefully in the diplomatic world knows that the final outcome, if there is one, is something like the Clinton plan, right? It's not difficult to come up with a reasonably rational, sensible uh, compromise solution. Uh, but the fact is that as much as outsiders can see this, the locals aren't there yet. And uh, so our job on the outside is uh, uh, to help them get there, to use the power uh, that we have to nudge them there. And um, it's a very difficult situation. And I used to think that maybe it would be solved soon. And frankly, now I'm pessimistic and now I don't. And so that doesn't mean I think you shouldn't try uh, the blood tax that this exerts on American foreign policy and the, and the diplomatic costs are high. You should basically spend, I would hire, if, I were, if I, you made me Secretary of State tomorrow, I would devote you know, at least 20%, maybe more, of U.S. foreign policy and my own time and effort to trying to solve this. Uh, I would hire the best people I could find who are much more idealistic and optimistic than I am about doing so and listen to them. Not because I think it would get anywhere, although it would be great if it did, but simply because this is one of those things where, as bad as the situation I just described is, it can get even worse if they're actually openly fighting. And so uh, if you don't do everything you can even to keep the, uh, the ball rolling up the hill, you know, Sisyphus isn't going to get there anytime soon. But if he stops trying to roll it up the hill, it'll roll down the hill and squish Sisyphus as well as everybody else. So that's the way I sort of think about the Middle East. Depressing, but unfortunately. Hi, my name's Steve Kaiser. Uh, isn't it true that the Kuwaitis were slant drilling into Iraqi oil fields and stealing Iraqi oil? And didn't uh, Saddam Hussein come to our ambassador, April Glassby, in Baghdad and, and, and relate the situation and tell us what he was going to do? And ultimately, didn't we sucker Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait so that we could crush him? No. Uh, or rather, yes and no. Uh, the first part is true and the second part is not true. Uh, the first part is true in the sense that the, uh, the Kuwaitis were doing uh, some, some uh, relatively slimy, self-interested things. Um, uh, as were the Iraqis, uh, and the uh, specifics of the disputes over who uh, had exactly what rights to what particular resources were sort of complex, and uh, uh, just who would get what uh, was something we didn't want to get in the middle of. And so uh, what happened was Everybody, so, so Saddam, who had just fought the Iran-Iraq war, come out of it with huge debts, a large army but huge debts, essentially decided that he was going to try to uh, recoup some of his losses by getting some money uh, from the rich and weaker uh, sheikdoms around him. And everybody, including uh, the, the, the Kuwaitis, the Saudis, thought this was basically a kind of protection racket, right? So everybody assumed that he would uh, 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 make demands, ratchet up some military options, um, and then essentially get paid off by the Kuwaitis, uh, and then everything would go back to normal. Um, and so what uh, we did 
uh, in that famous meeting with Glaspie, uh, the, the, the Bush administration uh, thought that's what was going on. And she was directed to say boilerplate, which is, we don't have a position on the details of your specific economic disputes with, uh, but you know, you and Kuwait, you work this out by yourself. The only thing we care about is basic sort of uh, uh, high-level security and stability in the Gulf. We're committed to that. Short of that, the specific details you guys figure out on your own. It was essentially a sort of regurgitation of um, standard American policy uh, ever since the Carter Doctrine, uh, which is we're in charge of Persian Gulf security, we're committed to it, but we don't want to get involved in the details of specifics of you know, individual bilateral disputes. And we did that, and in fact, after that meeting, far from luring uh, uh, Saddam into a conflict, uh, Glaspie, uh, who was a perfectly decent ambassador who kind of haplessly got caught up in history, Glaspie, at the end of that meeting, uh, thought things had gone well in the meeting, came out, wrote a note back home, sort of writing up what happened in the meeting, goes on a prearranged vacation because she feels the crisis has actually gone some ways towards being resolved. And, uh, and then Saddam shocks everybody a few days later by uh, uh, essentially coming out uh, and, and attacking Kuwait. We didn't, we didn't uh, trap him in. Uh, first of all, these guys weren't nearly uh, clever enough to do that. And second of all, uh, too, much more Machiavellian, we had no military resources. We were scared shitless, frankly, uh, in the days after the uh, invasion uh, because we really thought we were going to lose, um, there was a chance we would lose Saudi Arabia as well as Kuwait. Um, so uh, they were clueless rather than uh, Machiavellian and deceitful. We expected him to essentially bully the Kuwaitis and threaten them and maybe at absolute most seize up an oil field or, the, or a couple of islands nearby uh, offshore in dispute. Oil underneath his sand. Uh, the oil that they were stealing was underneath Iraq. Now it's underneath Kuwait because they adjusted the war and gave that land to the Kuwaitis afterwards, yeah. the, which almost nobody in America knows. The, 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 Is that correct? Saddam was, the, the, as I said, the Kuwaitis were doing things on their own. The Iraqis, remember, were just coming off a war, which they had attacked Iran. Uh, nobody in this region, uh, shall we say, was playing with extraordinarily clean hands or legitimate interests, and essentially we were trying to stay out of it while preserving the most general degree of public order. We didn't give a damn who had which particular oil. It wasn't about legality. It wasn't about uh, uh, who had justice on their side. It was, a, you know, we were basically saying, kids, play nicely together. When my 10-year-old and my 6-year-old start fighting, uh, and I don't want to get up from watching TV or reading a book, and I yell into the other room, I don't care who started it, just be quiet and don't make me come in there, uh, uh, that's essentially what was going on uh, with the April Grassby meeting, which is we were basically telling them, solve this yourselves, don't make us come in there, we'll come in there, but, you know, we don't care about the details. And that we never thought that you know, the 10-year-old would pick up an axe and start hacking away at the 6-year-old. Uh, and, and then only then we realized, oh my god, we've got to actually really do something about this now. So that's it. Hello, uh, my name is Jimmy Israel. And I would, I would like to know uh, what you would do right after 9-11 not to go to war in either Afghanistan or Iraq. 
I can say this with some degree of confidence because I actually wrote an op-ed uh, a few days after 9-11 with a couple of buddies of mine uh, about what we should do in Afghanistan, certainly, and I know what I was thinking about Iraq. Uh, the short answer is, I think I would have had to go to war in Afghanistan, but there was no reason to go to war, or no, no necessary reason to go to war in Iraq. Um, the Afghanistan situation was the following. I mean, the fact is we knew who did it, and uh, the people who did it uh, were in Afghanistan under the protection of the Afghan government. And uh, I think for a whole variety of reasons, we had to go after them, both as retribution to make it be shown that uh, you couldn't do this with impunity. And you know, for our own sense of moral justice and retribution, our populace would not have stood for it and shouldn't have stood for it if we didn't go after the people who you know, massacred several thousand people in my hometown and, and you know, essentially made us live under a reign of terror. Second, uh, to show that you can't do this and get away with it. And third, to help prevent future attacks. Uh, the problem is that the, uh, the Afghan government was in bed with these guys and providing them protection. So some kind of uh, military operation, uh, I think, was unfortunately necessary. Um, there was no way to do it with, uh, with any pressure from the, the rest of the, the, the world? And, I, I, don't really, I really don't think so. Um, uh, I mean, it, hindsight is somewhat 2020. Uh, you tried for about a month uh, to, uh, to do things uh, and, and diplomatically, uh, or a little less than a month, I think. But you know, the, the Taliban, there's no reason to believe the Taliban would have given up uh, al-Qaeda uh, if we had just lasted a little longer. And given terrorism, uh, and, the, and, the, and the potential risks of another attack, uh, speed seemed to be of the essence, so I wouldn't have uh, uh, waited too long on that. Um, now, Iraq's a different story, because uh, in Iraq, uh, there was no urgency. Uh, even those few uh, smart, serious people who were in favor of war for security reasons uh, uh, felt that the war could be done sort of at our pace, at our time frame. Uh, to my everlasting uh, embarrassment, uh, uh, I was at the end of the day a supporter of the war, uh, not just because I believed in the WMD, but also because I stupidly and naively assumed uh, that a lot of the questions I now wrote about would have been handled properly. It never occurred to me, frankly. It never crossed my mind because I was way too embedded in the establishment thinking uh, and way too uh, naive, frankly, at that point. Uh, and unskeptical. It never occurred to me that uh, serious policymakers uh, could uh, go about a, a serious operation like war so absolutely uh, uh, irresponsibly without proper plans for these things. Uh, the policymakers that I know uh, are more along the lines of the Nixon Kissinger types or the Clinton types, which is they may be uh, saying one thing and doing another, but they're actually doing stuff behind the scenes, even though they don't talk honestly about what they're doing. It never occurred to me that the surface silliness that we were hearing from the Bush administration was not complemented by more rigorous, serious planning behind the scenes. Uh, it turns out it wasn't, and that the silliness on the surface was the silliness throughout. Uh, it was turtles all the way down, for those who know that reference. But I, uh, I didn't know that uh, at the time, and i uh, embarrassed. But that said, even the people who were somewhat pro-war, like a sort of Ken Pollock type, if you go back and look at Ken Pollock's book, The Threatening Storm, which in one sense looks kind of silly now because it's all about this WMD threat that we now realize didn't exist uh, in the kind of form that we thought it did. Uh, but there are other parts of it, whole other parts, that, that stand up very well, which is if you go to war, here are the ways you should do it, here are the things you have to think about, here's the post-war situation you have to worry about, here are the questions you need to answer. And so um, you could have 
taken your time, gotten your ducks in a row, tried a whole variety of other things first. So the Iraq stuff was largely preventable. 9-11 uh, didn't necessarily mean Iraq, and even doing Iraq didn't necessarily mean doing Iraq in the stupid way that you did. I try and discuss this in the chapter and explain why. Uh, uh, Afghanistan, however, I think you kind of had to go in. It's been a very thoughtful presentation. To what extent, um, accepting your analogy of uh, Afghanistan to Vietnam, do you think it's valid to analogize between uh, China's role in the Vietnam War and Iran's role in Afghanistan? And if you think that is a valid analogy, what lessons can Obama take from the way Nixon and Kissinger dealt with China's role in dealing with Iran going forward? I don't think the Iranian role in Afghanistan is as significant as the Chinese role in Vietnam was. Um, that said, if you wanted to go there, uh, the idea of engaging China to help get out of uh, Vietnam and for its own purposes was a key part of the Nixon and Kissinger strategy. So engaging Iran, uh, both for its own purposes and to help create some kind of regional uh, uh, commerce situation would be a logical approach, just as the Iraq study group said somewhat naively that you know we should do a lot of regional diplomacy if we were going to pull out of Iraq, so in the same way uh, we should do a lot of regional diplomacy if we're going to pull out of Afghanistan, again, in an attempt to try to make sure that things hold together after we leave. It's not, you know, we like to, we, we focus obsessively perhaps on uh, us and uh, uh, our involvement and our troops and the fact is that you know there are others involved in this, and there are regional things, and it's not just like us or you know going in or getting out. So if we do go out, we want to try and leave the situation, even if we're cutting and running, or even if we're pulling back, we want to leave the situation as stable as possible. And some kind of intense and serious regional diplomacy uh, makes sense. Uh, and I don't happen not to think that the Iranian regime is as implacably lunatic um, uh, as to not be able to be engaged in some ways. And I think that the, actually there is, in some respects, that we have some common interests in Afghanistan, enough to make certainly a legitimate, uh, to make the Iranians a legitimate uh, partner or player, at least in the post-withdrawal future regional discussions about Afghanistan. If you look at where Afghanistan is, there are lots of players all around the sides. And uh, regional diplomacy, um, Ahmed Rashid has written a lot on this and has a whole book on this, uh, if you're interested in that subject. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing that I, again, like the Middle East peace process, I have few thoughts or uh, hopes that it will actually work but it's the kind of thing where we should try it anyway because it's good to be seen to be trying that sort of thing even if it doesn't work and there are a few downsides or costs to trying it. That's the kind of cynical, idealistic guy I am. Uh, so I would engage not because I'm not, you know, uh, I think it's going to bring everything perfect, but because engaging, uh, you know, what did Churchill say? Uh, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. And unless you're really faced with uh, uh, a need for war, war, uh, you should try jaw jaw as long as possible. It doesn't cost you anything and might actually get you somewhere. Thank you, Gideon. Thank you.